0: If you would turn your Bibles back to Psalm 139, if, if you're not there anymore, rejoin me there in this wonderful Psalm of David. At the heart of our daily battle with sin is deception. This has always been true from the very first sin in human history. Eve was deceived by Satan. Satan intentionally set out to twist the words of God and to twist Eve's perception of the character of God in order to deceive her into thinking that in that moment, the best possible choice would be to disobey the direct command of God rather than to obey. And since that time, deception has been at the heart of sin itself. Every single sin that you and I have ever or will ever commit involves deception. Some of that deception comes from outside influences. Of course, Satan is a deceiver by nature. He is called in scripture by Christ, the father of lies in John eight forty four. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. And Satan shows that deception to us most often through the world system, the fallen world system around us. In that sense, his deception can be seen every day as you drive down the street and pass billboards or see commercials or on social media, he is sowing his seeds of deception through the world system. Also, we understand that individual people can also deceive us. The scriptures tell us in places like Jude to beware of pretenders. In First Timothy six and other places we're warned against false teachers. There are those who present themselves to us as something they are not intentionally to deceive others. But there's another deceiver in your life that is far more deadly and effective than any of those examples. The biggest liar and deceiver in your life is your own heart. No one lies to you with more frequency, ease or persuasiveness than you do. John 2, 15 and 16 says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father's not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Notice in verse 16, that list, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, all of those are sins that begin internally, inside of a person. Understand, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, that you have a new nature, you have a new heart, but you still have a part of you, the Bible calls the flesh that is not yet redeemed, that is daily at war with your new heart. If you wanna read of that war, turn later to Romans seven, as Paul describes that war, that internal war within his own heart. And the flesh, your sinful flesh and mind shows up in our thoughts and our emotions. Your flesh is not your friend. It feels friendly, because it's so intimately close to you. After all, it's inside of you. It's tempting you at the level of your private thoughts and your private emotions. This is why the Bible would say things like this in Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Have you ever thought about that? How can that be? How could it be? that a way could genuinely seem right to a man. That, That means he's convinced this literally is the right thing for me to do. And yet he's not only wrong, but he's actually about to walk off a cliff. Think about that. That happens because inside of us, we are at war with our flesh. Our hearts are engaged in a deadly battle. And let me just say, your flesh is crafty, It is skilled in the art of deception. The Bible says the truth is we can never actually fully know our own hearts. It's true we have a new and transformed heart as a believer and yet because of our flesh there are still hidden layers within our heart that we do not even know of ourselves. Jeremiah 17, nine and 10 says the heart is more deceitful than all else and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10 gives the answer. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And so on the one hand, we have this deceptive heart, so deceptive in fact that the Bible says, you're hopeless to fully know your heart in this life. And yet on the other hand, the Bible calls each of us to have pure hearts and to walk in righteousness. So how do we do that? How do we live this life in which we have these competing truths of a deceptive heart that is not our friend but is our enemy on the inside and yet also the clear commands of God that say, I want you to walk in purity and I want you to walk in righteousness. How do we do that? Well, that's the question I want us to consider beginning this morning and over the next few weeks. We're going to take a short break from Hebrews to consider this all-important topic of the heart. And we're going to do it through the lens of a single psalm, a psalm that reveals to us not only the danger of our own heart, but also the answer to how we can ensure that our hearts are shepherded towards purity and righteousness. And we're going to do that through the lens of Psalm 139. We're going to read this morning. We read the whole psalm already in scripture reading. I'm just going to review verses one to six, because that'll be the section we're in this morning. Let's read Psalm 139 verses one to six. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. The theme that we're going to be unpacking from Psalm 139 over the next few weeks is this. Delight in the perfections of your God and continually invite his personal examination. Let me say that again. Delight in the perfections of your God and continually invite his personal examination. This is a psalm obviously attributed to David. The motivation for writing the psalm is not expressly given to us, but we can make some Some judgments based on what he writes. It it may have in fact been that David was in the midst of a trial as he often was with enemies who literally were out for blood. Enemies that wanted to take his life. When he he speaks here at the end of the psalm as we read earlier of these men who are men of bloodshed. Verse 19, depart from me therefore men of bloodshed. Wicked men who, who defame the name of God. But Even if that's not happening in the background, we know that the primary motivation for writing this Psalm is the fact that David is overwhelmed with gratitude and awe as he meditates on the perfections of his God. Now when we say the perfections of God, that is another way of saying the attributes of God. Sometimes we, we discuss the attributes of God and we use the term his perfections because it guards us against the error of thinking of the attributes of God in isolation from one another as if he takes off, you know, one hat and puts on another because the Bible speaks of God's attributes or his perfections as all being true all the time all the time at the same time never in contradiction with one another so for example God's just wrath and his gracious love are not enemies they operate simultaneously in perfect harmony with one another all the time And in Psalm 139, David invites us into his personal meditation on the perfections of God. And his meditation is instructive for us at a deeper level because he goes beyond simply meditating on the attributes of God as a mere academic or even theological pursuit. Instead, he identifies key perfections of God's nature and then he meditates on those attributes as they relate to himself. In other words, he not only thinks in terms of who God is, but he goes on to say, since God is this way, it must mean necessarily that he relates to me in a certain way. And this brings up a key truth for us to understand right out of the gate this morning. When it comes to difficult circumstances or battling temptation towards sin, the first place to turn your mind is the person of God himself. At the very moment that your heart is tempted to be consumed by your circumstance, intentionally consume your mind instead with the person of God. At the very moment you're tempted towards sin, intentionally choose to consume your mind instead with the person of God. The question is, what does that look like in practice? How do we do that? Well, as this psalm unfolds, we see a a wonderful picture of how the Christian is to shepherd his or her mind to be filled with the person of God. Psalm 139 breaks down into four components, we'll call them. We're just going to look at component number one. Each of them contains six verses. This, the first three of those components deal with a different attribute of God. And the fourth component is David's response to what he's learned. He gives responses along the way, but the fourth component, if you will, is the grand finale of his responses to what he's studied and thought and meditated on. And so component number one that we'll look at this morning is this, we'll call it personal omniscience, meaning he knows you intimately. Personal omniscience, verses one to six. In this section, he's gonna begin with an opening statement that gives us the idea he's going to meditate on and then he's gonna explain that to us or illustrate that to us with six examples followed by a personal response To this truth. But what I want you to see is this opening statement here that we're going to look at in just a second is not only the opening statement of the first component, it's the opening statement of the the theme of the book itself. In fact, it's going to function as a bookend to the, the whole Psalm. Look at this opening statement. He says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You've searched me and known me. Notice that those verbs are in the perfect tense. That is an action in the past that has ongoing ramifications for the future. But what I want you to see is that at the end of the same Psalm in verse 23, he's going to repeat the exact same thing, but he's gonna change from the perfect tense to the present tense. Look at the end of the Psalm in verse 23. He says, search me, O God and know my heart. Now, as we get there, I'll explain the significance of that change in verb tense. But what I want you to see right now is that this idea of God's intimate knowledge of the Christian is a theme that runs through the entire Psalm. The author delights and marvels at the perfections of his God. And as he does that, it births within him a desire and even an invitation. For God to know him more, to know him thoroughly. And it's my prayer that as we study this psalm, we'll have the same prayer to the Lord. Search me and know me. But let's consider this opening statement. "O Lord, you have searched me and known me. This is David's personal contemplation of of the, the attribute of God known as his omniscience. Omniscience simply refers to the fact that God knows all things. So to be clear, David is not saying that there was previously a time in which God didn't know him fully and then came to learn him and now knows him fully. That would be to go against the very nature of God. The truth of God's omni- om- omniscience means that God knows all things at the same time, all the time, forever, from eternally past to eternity future. There has never been a time in which God did not know all things simultaneously. So in that sense, this word search is a word picture. It's David's way of saying he he wants God to know him fully. He's acknowledging God indeed does know him fully in the present tense. And notice this is not a casual observance by God. This is an in-depth, exhaustive search a deep knowledge, an intimate knowledge. It it is God knowing David into the deepest recesses of his inner being. And the point here for us is that God knows you and me just as intimately. When David says me, you can rightly insert your name there because the same truth applies to each one of us. God knows you and I to an extreme that when contemplated literally boggles our minds. Your mind this morning at some point is going to break. I'll just give you a warning as we think on this. It's going to exhaust your ability to think on how God thinks. And to help us understand just how thoroughly God knows us, he gives us these six practical examples. Example number one, he knows my daily routine. He knows my daily routine. Look at verse one. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. This is a way of acknowledging that the entirety of our days and our nights are laid bare before the Lord. He sees you at your desk at your kitchen table, sleeping in your bed, and relaxing on your couch. He knows your commute, your coffee consumption, your exercise routine, or lack thereof, your preferred route to the store, and your favorite chair in the house. He knows the way you brush your teeth, mow your yard, fix your hair, organize your closet, and tuck your kids to bed at night. He knows it all. There's not one aspect of your day-to-day routine in life that goes unknown by the Lord, but that's not all. There's a second example. Example number two, he knows my inner thoughts. He knows my inner thoughts. Look back at verse two, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar you understand my thought from afar. Our daily routine, if you think about it, is something that others can know a large, to a large degree about us as well. But God's knowledge goes far beyond the surface of just our daily routine. It stretches to our innermost thoughts. And notice he says, he understands my thought from where? From afar. That is, though God is rightly enthroned in heaven, It is no obstacle for him to know your every thought. And notice, as we think about this, he doesn't just know my mind or your mind. God knows every single thought of every single being in existence that has ever taken place or ever will take place for the rest of eternity. Now just stop and think about that for just a moment. Think about how overwhelmed you and I can be just trying to process our thoughts. I remember when we planted the church, you know, I knew there would be certain things I would need to do and plan, but the the volume of the administration of such a task was far beyond even my own expectations. I, I found myself hours upon hours picking things down to what kind of sugar and creamer we're gonna have at the coffee station to what colors, I'm colorblind by the way, so that was a lot of fun, what colors we're gonna use for this sign and that. I would get through with the day just utterly exhausted with my own thoughts to the point that one time I came home and Rebecca asked Me a simple question, and I I said, Sweetheart, I don't even want to know what I think about that, to be honest. I, (laughs) I love you, and you're welcome to do whatever you would like to do on that. I've lost my capacity for any more decisions today. And yet, God knows every thought of every being, past, present, future, all the time, at the same time, forever. He knows all my thoughts, all your thoughts and all of everyone else's thoughts all at the same time and he does it from afar. That is to say, it takes no great amount of concentration for him to do it. It doesn't take concerted effort, he just knows it. He knows it. He doesn't have to worry about unexpectedly getting distracted and missing a thought here and there. He knows every thought in your head all day forever. In fact, he knew all of your thoughts before he made the world. It means he knows about you, not only the things that you're delighted for everyone else to know about you, but also the things you hope no one else ever knows about you. It means he knows you as you really are, not as you work hard to present yourself to be. He knows how much mental effort you either do or do not put forth to purify your thoughts. He knows the thoughts in your head that contradict the smile on your face. He knows your thoughts of him. He knows your thoughts of others. And if God knows your thoughts, he knows your deepest longings and desires. He knows your fears and anxieties. He knows when you're proud and when you're genuinely trying to pursue humility. For God to know your thoughts is for God to know your heart And for God to know your heart is for God to know you at a level that you can never even know yourself. Your heart, after all, manifests itself in your thought life. If you wanna know what's in your heart, listen to your thoughts. Eventually, as Jesus said, they'll come out of your mouth as well. And so from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But even prior to that, from the overflow of the heart, the mind thinks. And your entire thought life, that means not just your individual thoughts, but your habits of thinking. Those habits that are sinful and those habits that are righteous are laid before him as it were in broad daylight. You know, sometimes in our closest human relationships, such as a dear friend or a spouse or a child, we grow to a level of closeness with that person that we're convinced that we can read their minds. But what has really happened is we've become very skilled at reading their body language and attaching to that body language certain thoughts we assume are true. But the fact is we actually know nothing about their minds unless they choose to reveal it to us honestly. But God is not that way. God is not dependent on our self-revelation. He knows your true thought life better than you know yourself. And that means God knows you as thoroughly and intimately as you can be known. And this leads us to another obvious conclusion, then. There's more here. There's a third example of how God knows us. He goes on to say, He analyzes my activity and rest. He analyzes my activity and rest. Look at verse 3. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You scrutinize my path. Literally the word scrutinize there is the word to measure something. He sizes up your path and your lying down. The idea is not only that God knows your path and your routine, but he measures it. That is, he knows what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what it reveals about you. He knows our ways. He knows not only where you're going, but what you're going to do when you get there and your motivation for doing it and the inner desire you have for the result of what you hope it will bring. Each of your pursuits in life, whether it be your career or your marriage or your family life, your vacations, hobbies, financial portfolio, whatever it is, it's completely known to him. He knows your habits of productivity and he knows your habits of entertainment and rest and he measures them. He knows your habits of eating and drinking and spending your money, and he measures them. He knows these things so intimately that he knows the inner motivations, even the ones you try to hide from yourself. There's a fourth example here of God's personal omniscience. Example number four, he knows my internal and external mannerisms my internal and external mannerisms. Look back at verse three, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Now those words are important, each of them, intimately acquainted with all my ways. It's difficult to capture for David here and for us, just how thoroughly God knows us. And so he chooses to use this exhaustive description And he he picks terms that just cover all of his bases. You know, some people have the gift of impressions, doing impressions of other people. A lot of comedians have made a whole career of being able to accurately impersonate other famous people. And we like that. It makes us laugh. It's, it's, it's comical. Some of you maybe even have the gift of mimicking the voice and the gestures of someone close to you. And maybe at family gatherings, you enjoy doing that. And everyone laughs as they know who it is you're impersonating. The reason that's po- possible is because each of us have our own individual makeup, our own personality, and that personality expresses itself with certain vocal inflections and, 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 and facial expressions and outward physical gestures. And those things become so innate to who we are that even a person who has an average acting ability can, can repeat them and others know it's us. But what others don't know is that while we also do have external mannerisms that characterize us, we have internal mannerisms that characterize us as well. We build up patterns of thinking, patterns of reacting to certain kinds of people and situations, and that becomes over time instinctive to us. It becomes habitual. Certain kinds of images make us feel a certain way. Certain types of people and personalities make us tempted to respond in a certain way. There are certain kinds of circumstances that bring us to hope and certain kinds of circumstances that tempt us to despair. These are internal mannerisms, if you will, that that often become so routine that we don't even realize that we are doing them. In fact, we often blame them on family history. That's just the way I am. My grandma was that way and her mother and that's just the way it's gonna be. When in fact, we've actually built up these patterns of reacting to things in a certain way that yes, may have characterized others in our family, but are nonetheless sinful. God knows you so well, He can map out not only your external mannerisms, but the internal reflexes of your heart. He knows all of your ways. And if that's true, then of course, example number five must also be true that He gives here. He knows the formation of my words. The formation of my words. Verse four. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, oh God, you know it all. Notice, David does not say that God knows all our words. That's true, but it's much grander than that. God knows each of our individual words before they form in our mouths. He knows them because he knows the depths of our heart from which those words will ultimately spring. Psalm 44, 20 and 21 says, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Or Proverbs 15, 11, death and destruction lie open before the Lord. How much more do human hearts... Because God knows the inner recesses of your heart, it means that even when you don't know what to say, he knows exactly what you're going to come up with in the end. And if you think about it, this informs our prayer life. God calls us to pray to him, but obviously we understand certainly now that it's not because he wants to know anything from us or needs us to tell him anything. He wants us to know that we need him. He wants us to cry out to him in dependence and trust and praise. And he wants us in calling out to him to reveal our hearts to us and then help us repent of the sin that's there and walk in faithfulness. Are you starting to get a glimpse of just how intimately God knows you, Christian? You know, so many times we long to have people in our lives who truly know us at the deepest levels. Some of us long for deep relationships But at a certain point, even our closest human relationships fall woefully short in this area because no finite human being can ever truly perfectly know us. But our God does. He knows us fully through and through. So perfectly does he know you that it's as if he has you trapped in a barricade in which you cannot escape from his omniscience. That's the word picture he paints for us next in example number six. He holds me captive to his knowledge. He holds me captive to his knowledge. Look back at verse five. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Here David uses a military example of a siege to describe God's knowledge. It was a popular military tactic at the time when an invading army would come and surround the city wall which every city would have had. All of the people would retreat inside that city wall for protection but also what it meant is they were trapped. There was nowhere to go and so once their resources ran out, their only option was to starve or to surrender. They were caught. They had no choice. David says, God's knowledge of us is so supreme that it's as if he has surrounded the wall that is our our mind, our, our full being, and we are laid bare before him and there's nowhere to go. He's got a hold of you like a bear in a trap. There's no escape. And not only that, you're so close there and confined. It says, he lays his hand upon you. But in context, when it says that he lays his hand upon me, David doesn't see that as a bad thing. He doesn't mean he lays his hand upon me for my harm or for my destruction. He sees it as a blessing that God knows me in this way. And in spite of what he knows about me, he lays his hand upon me for my strengthening, for my good, that I might persevere in faithfulness to him. We know that because later he will add positive descriptions as well, such as even there he will guide me and his hand will lay a hold of me in verse 10. David's disposition towards God throughout this psalm is not one of fear, but of one of rejoicing that God knows him in this way. God, God knows David as his child and so David has full confidence that when God in his omniscience sees him as he is that he will lay his hand upon him to strengthen him, to refine him, to rescue him from his sin and to cause him to persevere in faithfulness. And if you are a child of God this morning, if you've come to know him through the person of Jesus Christ, understand that God is for you as well, that he lays his hand upon you for your good, not for your harm. Even his discipline is for our good. And as David dwells on these magnificent truths about God, he inevitably reaches a breaking point as all of our minds do as well. And the weightiness now of what he knows that God knows about him crashes in on him and it it causes him to respond in worship and in awe. Look at his personal response of worship and awe in verse six. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. You can almost hear the emotion and the trembling in David's voice as his mind has now reached the breaking point. He realizes that his thoughts about God's thoughts have reached their limit. His mind is completely bogged down and broken as he tries to comprehend the omniscience of God. The mind of God is is wonderful, it's glorious and it, it goes beyond our imaginations and our comprehension and it produces in us rightly a holy trembling David gets to this point and he steps back and says, it's too much. It's too much for me. It's too wonderful. I'm overwhelmed. My finite mind cannot take it. It's broken as I think about my God. And this should be our response as well, Christian. We cannot plumb the depths nor climb the heights of the infinite knowledge of God. And it's not simply that we don't know all the things that he knows about all things. We don't know all the things that he knows about us. I can't know myself like God knows me and I know more about myself than I know about any other thing. And yet it's terrifyingly awesome to think of the fact that God knows me in ways I could never even know myself. Isaiah 55, eight and nine says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Who can comprehend this God? Who would ever give him counsel? Think about Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 17. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and marked off the heavens by the span. This is the span of your hand right here from thumb to pinky. He says, God marked it off just with the span of his hand and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him in of the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust, Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. This is the grandeur of the glory of God, our God. This is the God that knows you, Christian. Understand this is the point of what David is doing here. He's calling us to delight in the perfections of God. Be overwhelmed with them. Meditate on them. Make it your aim to intimately know the God who already so intimately knows you. Make him your delight, the apple of your eye, the king of your heart, the preoccupation of your mind. When you're faced with the overwhelming trials and relentless temptation of this fallen world, the solution is to turn your mind to your God whose glory is so immense that it dwarfs your trial and it dwarfs your temptation. Occupy your mind with God so thoroughly that there's no room left for sin. There's no room left for worry because I've got too much to think on just trying to figure out my God. That's what David says. Like a fish slamming his head against his glass bowl, pushing to the limits of his cage, push your cognitive ability to its limits and do it again and do it again and do it again as you stretch to think on the awesomeness of God. Listen, if you've never come to the place where your meditation on God's perfections has pushed your mind to the breaking point, you've not thought hard enough about him. Consume your thoughts with him until your heart cries out with David's, it's too much. It's too wonderful for me. I've reached my limit. And then let that drive you to worship. Let it drive you to worship. This is why Paul would tell the Colossians in Colossians 3, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking. Notice that, keep seeking. Seeking, continually seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And it's here as we're trying to comprehend with David the fullness of who God is that that we're faced with a conundrum. Because this thorough knowledge of God is true of every person. That is to say it's true for every believer And it's true for every unbeliever. The impact of these truths about God should evoke distinct responses within us, but it should evoke different responses for the believer and the unbeliever. Let me just walk through the two primary responses that it ought to bring to each believer here this morning and the two primary responses it ought to bring to each unbeliever here this morning. For the believer, there are two primary results of thinking on the personal omniscience of God. Result number one is comfort, it's comfort. When we personalize God's knowledge of us and we picture the fact that he knows the outward and inward rhythms of our lives down to the very depths of our heart, it should bring comfort to the Christian. I hope that as we, as we talked about these things, you could just feel the overwhelming sense of the comfort of God. Because in Christ we understand that his knowledge of us is the knowledge of a father towards his children. We want to be known by him. Because of the blood of his son that covers our sin, the father delights in us, he loves us. It pleases him to know us through and through. And his knowledge of us, even of our sin, is meant for our good to reveal to us those layers of sin that remain that we might put them off and put on righteousness by his grace. His perfect knowledge of us in Christ is for our good and, and he sees not only our sin, But he sees our genuine love for him, however feeble it may be. He knows that we love him. He knows that we genuinely desire to serve him. He sees our devotion. He sees our efforts at service and our obedience, however feeble feeble it may be. He knows when we're falsely accused. He knows when we're slandered by others. And he knows the truth about us. He knows what keeps you up at night and what tempts you to be anxious and he uses that knowledge to come alongside you for your good, to strengthen you and hold you up. And so it is for true believers that the knowledge of God is a great encouragement and a comfort to us. But in addition to that, for the Christian, when it comes to our continual battle with sin and the process of sanctification, there's another result of this for us as Christian and that, that is his personal omniscience is an accountability for us. It's accountability. It reveals to us the foolishness to think that we could ever deceive God. Uh, We may successfully deceive others around us. We may even be deceived in our own hearts about ourselves, but God sees us as we really are. And so our knowledge of his knowledge of us should produce a weighty sense of accountability. It should cause us to take our thought life seriously, to take our words seriously, and of course our actions as well. It reminds us that the battle with sin rages internally and that internal battle is of equal importance as the battle on the outside. It Doesn't matter if any other person in your life ever discovers your patterns of sin because God already knows them fully. And so it is that meditating on his omniscience becomes our greatest source of accountability. Let me just be pastorally blunt with you this morning in love. If you claim to be a believer this morning and you're living in a secret pattern of sin and you've convinced yourself that no one knows, you're a fool. God knows. And if you claim to be a believer and you're harboring secret sin and you think the reason you can't kill that stubborn sin is because you just haven't found the right accountability partner? You're a fool. Listen, if the omniscience of the almighty holy God, who is your creator and judge, is not enough accountability for you to flee from sin, there's no human being on the planet that will be able to hold your feet to the fire. The apostle Paul, would not be a good enough accountability partner for you if you do not fear the personal omniscience of a holy God. Stop blaming your patterns of hidden sin on the inadequacies of other people and own the fact that it is you and you alone to blame and then freely confess those sins to the Lord and to others and walk in the light. If you're you're choosing to harbor bitterness in your heart, it is you who is doing that if you're choosing to entertain lustful thoughts, it is you who's doing that. If you're allowing jealousy and pride and selfishness to run wild in your heart, it is you who's doing that. And God sees it all. There's no greater accountability than that. None. If you wanna kill your sin, if you wanna kill those stubborn sins, we all have stubborn sins that we have to work on every day. You wanna kill that? then let the accountability of the omniscience of God drive you to freely confess your sin, proactively confess your sin. The way that accountability works is when you want to be accountable, not held accountable, you want to be accountable. Listen, if if you will sincerely choose to confess your sins proactively to a fence post, you'll be held accountable. The idea is you freely expressing your heart because you wanna live in the light before God and before men. That's how accountability works. If you're a true Christian this morning, meditate on the omniscience of God and let it compel you to walk in the light, to freely, proactively confess your sin to others and forsake it. As Proverbs 28, 13 and 14 said, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. But the personal omniscience of God is not just comfort and accountability for the believer, it also has an effect for the unbeliever. And when it comes to unbelievers, the omniscience of God results in two entirely different things. Result number one for the unbeliever is terror. Not comfort, but terror. If you're not in Christ this morning, then the omniscience of God should produce in you a healthy sense of real terror because God's omniscience means that the holy God who made you knows every single sin you've ever committed down to the thought level. There are no skeletons in your closet for God. Instead, every skeleton of sin you've tried to hide away is hanging on God's clothesline. He sees them in broad daylight. And the fact that your creator knows every sin of your life should absolutely terrify you. And if it doesn't, it means you've not yet fully understood what I've said or you're willfully suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. And there's another result for the unbeliever when we think about the personal omniscience of God and that is Not accountability but judgment, judgment. Not only should you as an unbeliever be terrified but you have to understand that God's perfect knowledge of your sin will cause you to have to give an account. You will be judged for your sin. Understand on the day of judgment, there will be no one, even the most prideful of men who can stand and legitimately make a a charge of injustice to God because he will lay before you all of your sins on the table and it will be clear even to the most vile sinner that you are getting what you deserve. But here is the amazing news this morning. God offers to you grace, love, love, and mercy. It doesn't have to be so. If you would understand that God did the unthinkable in sending his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ to live a perfect life so that he could offer that perfect life to pay for your sins on the cross and take the wrath of God for your sin upon Himself and then rise again from the grave on the third day, proving that He really is the Son of God and that the Father has accepted His sacrifice. The Bible says if you'll repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, you will be forgiven of your sins. All of them washed away in a moment. This is the good news of the Gospel. And then the personal omniscience of God will become for you a comfort and accountability, but no longer a terror and judgment. Maybe you're a Christian this morning and you're beaten down by the trials and temptations of life and sinfully you've begun to wonder, does God really see? Does he see me? Think on his perfect omniscience for a a moment through the, the words of Isaiah from chapter 40 when he says, why do you say O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow tired. They'll walk and not become weary. God knows you. He knows everything about you and your circumstance to a degree that goes beyond your imagination. And that should cause us to respond Let me just quickly give you three ways that we as believers ought to respond this morning to the good news of the personal omniscience of God. Number one, meditate on the omniscience of God, meditate. What we have in this Psalm of David is a commitment to meditate on the personal aspects of the omniscience of God. And in his meditations, he personalizes those attributes so that he sees how it should affect his own heart. And we ought to do the same. Let me encourage you to read again these six verses sometime this week and insert your name there in those places. It wouldn't be wrong to do so in this case because this is literally true of you line by line. It's true of me line by line. Insert your name there and think on the fact that God knows these things about you personally. And then I would encourage you to take the six examples he gives here and add other examples. This is not an exhaustive list. Other examples of things he knows about you and the world and the universe and let that overwhelm you as you think on God. All of that is to drive us to worship. And so as you meditate on God and your heart becomes full and begins to to be overwhelmed, let it come out of your mouth and praise through prayer, through song, but worship. Number two, take comfort in the omniscience of God. It's supposed to be a comfort, so take that comfort. You know, at times we go through difficulties in life and it seems that even those closest to us simply don't understand. In fact, they can't. They just, they they can't feel what we're feeling. They don't know what we know. We know they mean well as they try to come alongside us and give us comfort, but at the end of it, the truth is that child just feels really lonely. But this Psalm reminds us that we're never alone in our understanding of our circumstance, not truly. But God himself knows you and he knows every detail of your circumstance but more than that, he has ordained it and he knows how he plans to use it for your good and for the greater purpose of his plan of redemption and his glory. And so when you're tempted to occupy your mind with your loneliness, with your hurt, with your pain, Cause those things to flee from your mind by jamming it full with the person of God. Leave no room because God fills it all. And number three, find strength in the omniscience of God. Find strength. The omniscience of God, like his other perfections, has the power to strengthen us when we grow weak in the midst of trial and temptation. Because there's often so many things that we just simply don't know and we realize we can't know, things we wish we knew but we can't know about our circumstances. Like David, the key in that situation is to find strength not in a greater knowledge of the circumstance but in a greater knowledge of God who's with us in the midst of it. We dwell on the omniscience of God and as we do so, we find our spiritual legs of faith getting stronger. Like the the weary that will not remain weak in Isaiah 40 because he's strengthened by the Lord. Our knowledge of his knowledge gives us strength and causes us to thrust ourselves on him in trust and in faith. And as we do that, it's as if we can sense his mighty, gracious hand on us. May he lay his hand of protection and sustaining grace on us this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're overwhelmed at these great truths that we have the the blessed opportunity to study today. You are the great omniscient God and it means that you wonderfully and perfectly know us, your people through and through and you know us not for our harm but for our good. Even when you discipline us, you do it for our good. God, help us to think on these things, to be compelled by them this week and transformed by them. And God, we do pray if there be any among us who have not yet come to know you, who are still under that terror and judgment because of your all-knowing mind, that even now you would draw them to yourself to repentance and faith that they might know you and walk in the comfort and the accountability that you mean for your omniscience to be for your people.